0: الحمد لله، الحمد لله وكفى وصلاه والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى. أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. وإذا أردنا أن نهلك قرية أمرنا مترفيها ففسقوا فيها فحق عليها القول فدمرناها تدميرا. قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يوشك أن تداع الأمم عليكم كما تداع الأكلة على قصعتها قال قائل فمن قلة يومئذ نحن يا رسول الله قال بل أنتم كثير ولكنكم غثاء كخثاء السيل إلى آخر الحديث أو كما قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم most respected Ollam al-Kiram, brothers and elders. Before commencing with the topic on hand, just very briefly,
1: just a revision and a reminder about the very Mubarak time that we are in. You might have perhaps heard the virtues of these Mubarak days in the Juma talks or other occasions of all al-Kiram. But just as a reminder for us, we need this constant reminder, I need it. So just to quickly revise first some of the virtues of this mubarak time, so that inshallah, Allah give us a tawfiq that we apply ourselves as much as possible to try and maximise the benefit. In one hadith, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, reported to have said that there are no days in which any amal, any deed, is more beloved to Allah Taala than the righteous actions performed in these ten days, the first ten days of Zul Hijjah. These are such Mubarak days that after the month of Ramadan this is the most important and most virtuous part of the year. There is no other time of the year after the month of Ramadan that enjoys such virtue. So Nabi Salaam says that Allah Ta'ala loves the actions performed in this time more than any other time. So the Sahaba they were very clear about this that the greatest reward is for that Amal where a person lays his life down for Allah Ta'ala. So they for asked that wala jihadu fi sabirillah, not even jihad in the path of Allah Taala at other times equates the, the reward of the actions in this time. The Bishr said, not even that. Except that person who went out with all his belongings; he didn't leave one one cent behind. And then he went, he gave his life, he spent all his belongings for Allah Taala. He never came back alive. He became shaheed, and everything was spent for Allah Taala. His action will equate something. Otherwise nobody else can equate it. So here we have that opportunity to gain so much. It is something to for us to now take. Allah is showering down these na'mats and blessings. We have to present ourselves to take it. In another hadith, Nabi Salaam gives the virtue specifically about these 10 days that every day, each day each day equates the fast of each day equates the fast of one year. The person is earning a salary of 10,000 rands. So for the whole year, it's 120,000 rands. Somebody tells him, okay, now forget about that. You just come work one day, I'll give you 120,000 rands. The whole year's salary in one day. Which employer is ever going to be doing that? But Allah is showering down that naamat upon us, that you fast one day and take one year's reward. Then comes the ninth, and then together with that, The ibadat of each night is equivalent to the ibadat of Laylatul Qadr. So This is just there on the plate for us. Like we have been, like the person, instead of taking the person to the well to drink, the well has been brought to him. It's all left for him to drink. So these are very, very great virtues, very auspicious auspicious days. Then the ninth of Zulhijjah, the day of Arafah, apart from these virtues, the added virtue is, that it is the fasting of that day of the ninth of dhul Hijjah compensates for the minor sins of the past year of the forthcoming year. Such a great bounty of Allah Ta'ala. So these are occasions that we need to now become more conscious. The special tasbih of this time, which Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam very greatly emphasized. Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, La ilaha illallah, Allahu Akbar. Tremendously great rewards for this tasbihat. So this is something so easy, doesn't even take any time. Person is busy with his work sometimes, he's driving, he's walking somewhere, he can be engaged in the recitation of this tasbih. So we should try to maximize this. And then obviously, one is to take all these rewards but not to lose it. Just as on the one side we have to appreciate this Mubarak time to maximize the rewards. Just as the rewards become much more greater in these times, The disobedience of Allah becomes much more severe also. Like a person commits one sin here and the same sin he commits in the Haram Sharif. Obviously that is not the same. It becomes multiplied hundred thousand times worse there because of the sanctity of the place. So likewise the sanctity of the time. This is a very sanctified time. So while trying to maximize the rewards, this is a time to now train ourselves to get rid of all the negatives from our lives. Any wrongs, any sins, any evil habits, to now make that effort and make that himmat and azam, to take that courage, to now make that firm resolution that this inshallah will never happen in my life again, make sincere tawbah from it and move on. Allah ta'ala give us a tawfiq then obviously the reward, the amal of the night of Eid and then the day of uh, Eid Adha, the qurbani, etc. These virtues inshallah we have heard it many times. Allah ta'ala give us a reward and give us the ability and the tawfiq that we take the maximum benefit from all these amal. The topic that we have on hand is something that happened in history which is really a very very painful part of history. The Quran Sharif is also filled with a lot of history. But that history which gives us lessons of how to live our lives. What to do at that part of history that teaches us don't do this. If you look back you will see that people who lived their lives in this manner, what happened to them? What was their end result? So that part of history which gives a person a lesson for the way forward. That's a very very important part of history. Just for the purpose of some facts and figures, and just some kind of historical record, that is of no benefit to us, but to take the lesson from there. So as far as this topic that is concerned, the invasion of the Tatars, this too is a part of history, and it is that part of history, which many historians, when they came to this aspect of history, they couldn't write. And they state that we wrote the history from Adam A.S. time, whatever records could have been found, and whatever could have been traced, and so on. Some little bit that was available, whatever is in the light of Quran and Hadith, and apart from that, whatever, some... We wrote all this history. And when it came to all the difficulties that people went through, we wrote that as well. One very great historian, Ibn Asir, Rahmatullah Ali, his book on history, Al-Kamil Ibn Al-Athir, very, very highly acclaimed, very highly accepted in the among the books of history and among the historians, the ulama. So he says, when I came to this point, I decided not to write about this. It was such a painful part of Islamic history, that uh, history of the Muslims, that I decided not to write it. I couldn't do it. Then others told me, "No, you've got to. You can't leave this whole chapter out. This is very important to write it so that people understand what went on, and they take a lesson." And he says that I have written so much about all the problems, but I can say with certainty that if anybody claims that from the time of Adam al-Salaam till this incident happened, there was never a tragedy so great upon the Muslims of any era. And if somebody says that it is highly unlikely that anything of this magnitude will ever happen until the time of Yajuj Majuj. That too will be really based on really sound grounds. The past, it never happened. And it seems unlikely something of this magnitude will ever happen until the advent of Yajuj and Majuj. And he says, I wish my mother had never given birth to me, I wouldn't have been sitting to write this today. I wish I had passed away before this time came that I would sit to write this. Now can we imagine what is the magnitude of that incident that he is referring to, that he, a person of this nature, and historians are historians, they're very, very, uh, they write things without emotion, without getting caught up in the emotions, because this is the whole, the occupation, and they're writing about all these things, and he says, I came here and got stuck. This is the invasion of the Tatars, the Tatars which we perhaps have heard of many times. This happened around the 5th century, around the middle of the 5th century, after the 5th century of Hijrah. And this is something which Rasulullah himself prophesied. He foretold this. This kind of situation will come. And this was actually foretold as a sign of Qiyamah. لا تقوم hatta حتى تقاتلوا الترك that Qiyamah won't come until you will clash with the Turks, literally translated Turks. But this is actually referring to the Tatars of the time. They were in the same area. And then Nabi Salaam described what kind of features they will have, etc. This all was a perfect fit of the Tatars. So this is that uh, incident that happened, which then led to the fall of the Islamic Khalifat, the Abbasid Khalifat in particular, for 524 years, this Khilafat that had ruled, these people brought an end to it. And this too was foretold by Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That this time will come. In any case, this is a very very painful part of Islamic history, Muslim history rather. Just to understand briefly, there's too many details in this, in the little, little time that we have us first briefly go through the some of the incidents that have happened and the main thing as mentioned already the object is not just some kind of historical record, facts and figures that too unfortunately is a very very uh, difficult reality that we have to face but nowadays children, adults have become desensitized to what happens to the Ummad because of their indulgence so much in Either watching all kinds of things, children are playing from a small age, all these computer games, just killing games, killing anyone, everything getting killed here and there. So killing becomes like a game. So Others getting killed, Muslims got killed, it's all like one game carrying on still. That hurt, that pain, that what has happened to the Ummad, what has happened to some brother or sister of mine in some part of the world, that has more or less died off, because it all has become like a game now. They are killing, they're getting killed on that computer screen. So in real life that becomes it. Somebody got killed, somebody's killing. Unless it doesn't happen to somebody very close, immediate. It's just a passing thing. This is one of the ways in which this fervor that we should have in our hearts for the ummah has been killed. By means of all these kind of games. And then people are so glued to news. Just news for the sake, news has become like a kind of entertainment. All the time news, this happened, this atrocity, this uh, killing happened here, that problem happened there, and this becomes like another news item. So something happened to some Muslim somewhere in the world, that too is a news item. And then we turn the page and carry on. But then the next moment the person is just walking like nothing happened. So this should never be the case. The believers, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has stated, Al-mu'minoon ka Jasadin Wahid. In Ainuhu, Kullu. The believers are like one body. The eye pains, the whole body pains. The head pains, the whole body pains. You can't isolate it. That's the eye's problem. The eye will worry about it. The whole body is in solidarity with the eye. The whole body is in solidarity. The least is it will feel the pain. Make dua. In any case, this is a very difficult account of what happened at that time. But just briefly we will discuss some of these incidents and then uh, take the lessons that come out of it, what we should be taking, what lessons we should be taking. This genocide that took place, genocide is a word commonly used nowadays every other day we hear this word, is the calculated killing of a whole race, a whole community. A whole, as we hear, ethnic cleansing. This was perhaps the first genocide. And not perhaps it was. It was the worst ethnic cleansing that the earth has ever seen. That Muslims were targeted because they were Muslims. And the numbers are mind-boggling of how many Muslims were slaughtered, with, lost their lives. So what was the background to this? Where did it start off? So, at that time, there was one ruler Muhammad Khazam Shah was a very powerful ruler and he had conquered many lands so at that time he had become the most powerful king ruler of the time in that region on the one side was Abbasid Khilafat which was in Baghdad which was a very small area and small number comparatively and he had already conquered areas from up to Armenia and Georgia in the west, coming down to India in the south, and very very vast area. So, any case, as this kingdom of his expanded, now the power also corrupts, but in any case in that time, some incidents happened. One thing what happened was, at that time there was this other very vast uh Power at that time, under Genghis Khan. So now between these two, there were some trade relations, they accommodated one another's trade caravans. So one of the trade caravans from the Genghis Khan's territory, they came to a part known as, under the ruler Otrar, a place known as Otrar under the ruler, this was under the jurisdiction of Muhammad Khazam Shah. The ruler of this place, Uttarar, he wrote to Muhammad Khazam Shah. And he says, look, this caravan has come. They've got tremendous wealth. They are carrying riches that we can't describe. And then he added to that, it appears they are spies. They've come here as spies. Now without full investigations, without really verifying that is this genuinely the case, Muhammad Khazam Shah gave the instruction these people's wealth was all confiscated, not just that, that entire caravan, all the people were executed. Now this was a serious zulum, there was an operation. This message reached Genghis Khan, he was very upset, very enraged, called his advisors. He said, this is, we can't tolerate this, we should march against them immediately. He said, no fine, I want to still make some inquiries. So he sent another deputation and envoy and with them a letter to Muhammad Khazam Shah that this happened in your territory did you give the instruction for this or this person who is the ruler of that section he did this on his own if he did it on his own we're going to punish him very severely and if you were involved in this then this is something now he's writing now this believer Genghis Khan is writing he's saying I despite not following any religion I too don't regard this as acceptable that somebody has come as a trade delegation, meaning they've come with what we will call in our terms a visa. A visa is a document of giving security that you come into our land, you are permitted to come, you will be given the normal security that others are given. So the person was given the security to come and go as he with ease and peace. So I don't regard this as permissible as well. These people were Muslims. How did you attack them and kill them? So now please reply, did you give this instruction or was it done by this ruler of Otrar? So he had no answer, he could not give any reply because he had given the instruction. So now his son tried to reason with him and said, you know what, you'd rather go and make peace with him. And this ruler of Otrar, he was a person that gave this wrong information or whatever unverified information, you'd rather hand him over, you'd rather take revenge from one person rather than the whole population suffering. And being uh, killed and mercilessly butchered. But power, Allah ta'ala save us and protect us. Power has a more severe intoxicating effect than the worst intoxicant sometimes. This person couldn't think about apologizing or saying, okay, we made a mistake. No, he decided to start preparing for war. That we won't allow somebody to dictate to us like this. These are all the words of pride. Pride and arrogance has never made anybody succeed anyway. Pride and arrogance has always been the means of the downfall of people. It was the means of the downfall of Azazil who was Muallimul Malaika but that pride brought his downfall made him Iblis, Shaitan the accursed. He was that person who was the teacher of the Malaika. But pride... Brought that moment where he became a cursed till Qiyamah and forever. So this pride also now made this person start acting in a serious way. That envoy that had come with this letter now—an envoy is an ambassador. Ambassador in any whatever culture it might be, whichever an ambassador is somebody that is given full protection. He killed that envoy also. Killed that envoy. And the rest of the delegation to so to say humiliate them, he had their beards shaven and sent them off. And when they came back and Genghis Khan came to know what happened, he obviously was now really enraged and he started preparing for war. This fellow, Muhammad Harzam Shah, he also started preparing for war and he decided that we need to now rather advance before they come to our land, we'll go to their land. So, he, undert- with the army, of very huge army, they left immediately and they came to one portion of the area that was under Genghis Khan. This was a very, very small portion still. And when they came there, the place at that time, whoever was there, they ended up in a battle with them. Now, this was one very small portion of this person's army. This battle lasted for three days. There was so much of blood that the horses started slipping. And after three days, it was such a fierce battle. After three days, at night, both armies in the darkness of night retreated. Because they couldn't face continue with this. But now when this person returned, Muhammad kharzam Shah, he quickly returned, retreated from there and came to Bukhara. But he realized that this was one small portion of Genghis Khan's army and he couldn't defeat them, Where he's going to defeat the entire army. And now he realized that this fellow is coming with his entire army now. So he started splitting up his troops, put some 20,000 in Bukhara, 50,000 in Samarkand, another, so many here and so many there. But that was another major mistake. Historians write, That that was another major mistake because he split his whole army up in so many different places to protect the various cities. But that was the biggest mistake he made. But we will call it mistake that he made, his foolishness. We might give it even more stronger words to describe what a foolish thing he did. But later we will come to a lesson to take from here. In any case, he left these armies all over the place. Went to gather more armies and come but that was the biggest mistake, according to historians, that he made on a tactical note. That he split his army, the numbers were all divided, and Genghis Khan came with his entire army running over one city at a time. So these numbers were too small to face him. Any case, the there's too many details to go here. But finally Genghis Khan came, first he surrounded and besieged Bukhara when the city was besieged. Here also, the fighting continued for several days. Eventually, the people of Bukhara. It is stated that more than some forty thousand people were killed in Bukhara alone. And the pillaging, the looting, they violated the woman, they all kinds of atrocities. They were about four hundred soldiers when when the army that was surrounding or Sort of protecting Bukhara when they couldn't take it any further and they fled. 400 soldiers went and took refuge in a fort. After Genghis Khan came, he forced the Muslims that were still left in the city to come along. And in order to now conquer this fort, there was a trench around the fort. Now just to either the, the painful paths, but to try and think that what brought about such a low there was a trench around that fort now that trench had to be filled in order to now get to the fort itself so he forced these muslims that were now brought out of the city to fill this trench up so that they can cross over it so now they were filling it up with sand whatever but that wasn't good enough for him he ordered his army they brought the members of the masajid of bukhara bukhara is a place which every muslim has heard the name in some way or the other place of Imam Bukhari it was a place which was a seat of knowledge where there used to be sometimes in the halaqat and in the circles of learning of hadith one muhadith he is delivering hadith there used to be thousands of students 20,000 30,000 students in that one halaqa there would be 70 80 people mukabbirs relaying this the voice of the muhadith this kind of a place and now some centuries later this is the situation. The members of the masjids were also thrown into these trenches. Allah forbid, every copy of the Quran Sharif they could lay their hands on, was used to fill these trenches. And eventually that fort was also conquered, and these soldiers were also massacred. This was the aspect of Bukhara. After Bukhara, then there was the bigger city of Samarkand. In Samarkand, it is mentioned that there was an army of Uh, quite a big army there, but 70,000 soldiers were killed and 50,000 of the inhabitants of the city were killed. Can we imagine what a kind of, it's, it's mind boggling. We have heard so many things happen, we've heard and really every bit of it, whether it's one person or 100 people, it's supposed to really make us feel the pain. Whether it was Bosnia, whether it was Burma, whether it's any part of the world. Whether it was Palestine, whether it's in Africa. Wherever the Muslims have been persecuted, where they have been massacred. These are things which are very very painful parts of our history unfortunately. But there is nothing in comparison to what happened here. That this was just in Samarkand alone, 70,000 soldiers, 50,000 inhabitants of the city were massacred. This Muhammad Khazam Shah, they were now in pursuit of him. He realized that he is under... There is no way he can now face this army. He fled. Finally he fled. He boarded one boat in the Caspian Sea. And he was now trying to find some way out. Now this is something very noteworthy. That he was the most powerful king of that region at the time. And that area that he was ruling... Was from the west uh, uh, Georgia and Armenia up to China in the east up to India in the south what a vast kingdom now he's sitting in this boat and he got sick in that boat as well uh, he's unders- he can see that coming but now where does he go to and he in that desperation he calls out he says Subhanallah Malikul Muluk says Ya Allah O oh, king of all kings, eh? Malik al-Muluk, that in this Lam lana min, uh, qadru fiha. that this vast kingdom I had, in all this vast kingdom, millions of square miles, I can't even find two arms space to get buried in. Now I'm sitting in this desperation. The very big lesson Power, wealth, influence, all these things are not to be regarded as something that's invincible. Allah Taala protect us, Allah Taala save us, that the tables can turn. If a person is just, he's upright, then inshallah, everything will carry on. But Allah forbid the zulm, and this is a whole, the trigger to all this was zulm. The zulm that was committed on that trade caravan, on those envoys, and then All that wealth of theirs was also confiscated. That was Zulm. Their lives were taken. That was Zulm. The trigger to this was Zulm. And Zulm Zulm Zulumatun Yom al Qiyamah. Zulm is a means of severe problems on the day of Qiyama. A person will be in this darkness not knowing where he's heading and falling, Allah forbid, into where not. But that is the day of Qiyamah long before that in Dunya. Zulm brings its consequences. Allah protect us and save us. In any case, one city after the other, they began running over. Then they came to the place called Maru, which was a very well-known seat of learning. Again, seven hundred thousand people were massacred in the city. Seven hundred thousand Muslims were massacred, and in this manner, time and again, they carried on. Eventually, after they conquered Samarkand, they came to and Maru, etc. The biggest city was Kharzim, where this much Shah Kharzim was from. This entire city, same thing happened. Again, many details involved. One of the things they did here, after having repeatedly searched for every person that they could find and kill him, but many people, a vast place, people were hiding out here and there. They came to know people are hiding in a certain building. They either broke into it and killed them, or they didn't bother to break into it also. They just set the whole building alight. Now there's hundreds of people hiding in there taking refuge and there's no way they can come out again also. And the whole place would just be burned down to ashes. This is how. And then this place Harzim, after having killed by the hundreds of thousands, eventually they knew still many people are still hiding in. They went and opened the floodgates and allowed the flood water the dam waters to run over the entire city. The whole city was submerged. So that if anybody survived, he got killed by drowned by these floodwaters. This was the way in which this very brutal and terrible massacre continued. Nevertheless, one very, very a deep thing that happened in this time was that when all this was happening, these atrocities were taking place, people were being massacred. But there was some very great awe and fear of the Tatars that had just besieged the Muslims. And one was the atrocities that the Tatars were committing upon them. They themselves had become so weak and they were so overawed that they couldn't even do anything to defend themselves. Historians have recorded some such uh, incidents which are unimaginable that this could have happened, but it happened. But just to understand this in the light of one hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam so that we can understand that, yes, this also has been foretold, it'll happen. But it doesn't happen just by chance, it happens because of certain factors that we do. In the hadith that was recited right at the beginning, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam foretold that, يُوشِكُ أَن تَدَاعَ الْأُمَمُ عَلَيْكُمْ كَمَا تَدَاعَ الْأَكَلَةُ ala qasatiha ila That perhaps a time will come, when the nations of the world will call one another... To pounce upon you, like people call one another to join them in their food. A few people are eating, two, three people are eating. And now, fourth person comes, so they make place for him. You come also, you take a share, you also eat. And the fifth person come, they call him as well, invite him also. You come and take a share as well. As people eating, invite one another, come and you have your share as well. In that manner, the disbelievers will call one upon another, invite others. They'll form their so-called coalitions. To pounce upon the Muslims and destroy the Muslims. So the Sahaba were astonished by this. They were totally surprised that such a thing can happen. So somebody asked that perhaps at that time we would be in a very small number. That everybody will have this kind of uh, courage. They will be so daring and bold. That they will actually call one another that you come and have your share as well. Nabi Islam said no. bal Kathir, بَلْ أَنْتُمْ كَثِيرُ ghuthaun ka is Sain. No, no, it's not a matter of small numbers. You will be in a very big number. But you will be like the, the dirt on the flood waters. It just floats on the flood waters of no significance. It just, just gets flung any direction. And it can do nothing. It's of no benefit to anybody too. It is just washed around here and there. And it just is of no benefit. And then Nabi the Slaasam says, and what will happen is that in your hearts one is that Allah Ta'ala will remove the fear from the hearts of your enemies for yourselves. Your enemies won't fear you anymore. And there will be this wahan in your hearts. The sahaba asked, what is this wahan? Nabi Islam said, حُبُّ الدُّنْيَا الموت. The love of the world and the dislike for death. In other words, you won't want to be looking forward to the akhirah to Jannah's. No, you your entire focus would be dunya. That you want to be in dunya forever. And this love of dunya would have settled in your heart. Love of dunya as a result of it, what is halal, haram now makes no difference. What is proper, improper makes no difference. Whether it's coming in a way that is pleasing Allah Ta'ala, whether it's displeasing Allah Ta'ala, that makes no difference. Whether somebody's rights are getting trampled in the process or not, it makes no difference. I need to just amass the world and I need to enjoy it. So that is that hubbu dunya. Hubbu dunya, Nabi Sallallahu hasn't forbidden earning dunya. Earning dunya in a halal way, within the limits of shariat, using it in a correct manner, that is a ni'mat. But hubbu dunya, this love of dunya, where it then makes a person start forgetting Allah ta'ala, forgetting his obligations of deen, forgetting his salah, forgetting the commands of Allah ta'ala in how to conduct that business correctly, forgetting what his object of life is, that that hubbud dunya is so severe that then the entire the enemies of the muslims now fear them no more and the muslims just become like the the dirt on the flood waters this is what happened on this occasion incidents recorded by historians one incident that a tatar woman she just dressed up like a man and she came there was a whole group of men they saw one tatar entering they thought it's a man they just merely saw him and they were so overawed and in fear nobody dared to move she just killed a whole lot of them it was only after she took one or two captives and then she laid down that weapon she was carrying they realized that this is not a man, this is a woman and then somebody just pounced on her and killed her or whatever but till then nobody had the courage to do anything one Tatar came into an alley he just walked into an alley by chance And he sees there's a hundred Muslim men there. He told all of them, just please stand where you are. And from one side, he started slaughtering one after the other. Nobody had the courage to even move, to even run away. Let alone try to, a hundred people, if they just merely just hit hit him with their hands too, they would have killed him. But they didn't even have the courage to flee, forget to defend themselves. That awe. Now, consider the hadith that we just discussed. And what Nabi Salaam mentioned, Allah Ta'ala will extract the fear for yourselves from the hearts of your enemies. They won't fear you. And the opposite will happen. That when the fear from the enemy's hearts are gone, you will be now overawed with them. Now these hundred people couldn't move. One, and there's so many incidents of this nature that are mentioned, there's no point in discussing all those details. But this became the condition of the Ummah at that time and the Muslims. (coughs) Nevertheless, we'll come towards the end on some of the lessons after all these cities were conquered now what was left was this was the area of this Khazim Shah but what was still left was the Khilafat and the seat of the Khilafat in Baghdad which was still under the Abbasid Khalifa Mustasim Billah at that time so now when Genghis Khan conquered all this then he eventually he died as well his grandson, his name is recorded as Halaku Khan. He turned his attention towards Baghdad now. That we need to conquer even the Khilafat, and this should remain no more. In any case, when he came with a hundred thousand horsemen and besieged Baghdad, at that time there were just ten thousand soldiers in Baghdad. A hundred thousand. And they're facing these odds of 10,000. This is now the very important point to note that how this happened. 10,000 only for such a vast area in itself. What happened here that there was an advisor to the Khalifa, Ibn al alqami This person was a Shia. Not long before this event had happened, about a year or so before that, sometime before that, there was some problem and there was a Kind of fight between the Sunnis and the Shia. Any case, that was quelled. But now this person himself was a Shia, and he became the advisor of the Khalifa. So now this fanned that hatred in his heart for the Muslims. So he decided somehow he needs to take revenge. He's the advisor to the Khalifa. So in a various, in various ways and in a very deceptive manner, he started advising the Khalifa and convinced him somehow that look. It's costing us too much to maintain this entire army. We must start dismissing these soldiers and cut the allowance. And he convinced him after a while. And one after the other, whole groups of soldiers were being dismissed and the allowance cut. They had no other means of survival. Many of them were just turning to begging, some doing something else. And over time now there's just 10,000 of these soldiers left. When just that much was left, this Ibn al-Alqami, who was now a traitor, he sent a message to the Halaku Khan that if you come and you advance against Baghdad, this is the information I am giving you, which is 100 percent that there is no way that they can face your army and you will run over this place. He actually invited this invasion. He's sitting here as the advisor of the Khalifa, and he invited this invasion. In any case, when Halaku Khan came and he camped outside and he besieges the city with these hundred thousand horsemen. So, <coughs> Ibn al Khabi says to the Khalifa of the time, okay, let me go and negotiate with him and try and see if we can uh, sign a peace treaty. I Meanwhile, he was the whole the traitor in the Mitz, but now he is playing the game in this manner. <coughs> so he goes and then first he secures protection for himself, for his people and so on. And then after whatever, he comes back and he says to the Khalifa, well, you see, everything, all the arrangements are in place, you must now come personally and you must sign the treaty and you must bring all the eminent people of Baghdad along. So now to sign the peace treaty, his advisor has gone, he's done the negotiations and whatever else, there were various conditions of the peace treaty. So he went along with 700 of the most notable people of Baghdad when they come there, 17 of them with the Khalifa, 17 were put aside. The rest of them were all slaughtered. And these people were brought in front of Halaqu Khan. But when this incident happened, Khalifa Mustasim, he became so overcome by this and overwhelmed, he couldn't even talk in a coherent manner. He was just babbling around, he didn't even know what he's saying. Any case, somehow under guard, they sent him back to Baghdad. This Ibn al-Alqami, and another person, Nasiruddin Tusi, who was also a Shia, they tried to convince this Halaku Khan that the simplest thing to do now is to kill this person, but you're sending him back. But somebody told him, look, don't kill him whatever you do, because he is, now, this Halaku Khan is not a Muslim, but now he's took this seriously, what somebody advised him, that this person, whatever he is, he's a Sayyid, meaning he's from the progeny of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, if his blood spills on the floor, on the ground, there'll be, your, your whole you'll be in great problems. So now he was afraid of this. So now he told them, no, no, I can't do this. Now can we imagine to what extent of the treachery of these people? He said, no, if you don't want to do that, you don't want to spill his blood. All you want to make sure is that his blood muscle fall on the ground. So Fine. Now there's so many ways of having come to that end result. But what they did, they gave him the plan. That they had, finally he came and had this Khalifa wrapped up. In sackcloth completely. And put people around to kick him to death. And in this manner he met his end. After he was killed in this manner. Then the plundering and looting and pillaging. Of that magnitude started. Which had never happened before. In the history of mankind. And perhaps will never happen. Till Qiyamah. Till Yajuj Majuj. Out of the two and a half million population of Baghdad. 1.8 million people were massacred and all the masajids were burned down, the madaris were burned down and what kind of atrocities were committed. Historians say we couldn't write it, whatever little they wrote, they wrote but they couldn't write it. It was beyond human understanding that something of this nature could have happened but this had come and this is what happened after Baghdad had been overcome in this manner this is something which was the end of the Khilafat at that time and the Muslims are now completely dominated the Tatars were ruling all over these places and the Muslims wherever there were some Muslims still existing they were totally under this dominion and under the rule of the Tatars and they were under very harsh treatment the Tatars were not necessarily involved in any religion But yet they, na'uzu billah, hated the Muslims with a passion. And they were very, very harsh upon them. So this is some of the incidents that took place. But as mentioned earlier, that this is not the purpose of discussing history. That we get to know some facts and some figures and some incidents. And then we move on like we read some storybook. The issue is to analyze that what happened why it happened. What were the reasons that something of this nature can happen. What are the lessons we have to learn from there. And what steps we have to take. So that we don't get caught up in such things that Allah forbid we draw down azab upon ourselves. Now in order to just go into this. One is the from the perspective of historians. Historians they will now analyze it from the point of history. What happened and how it happened. So some noted those very same points... ...what we discussed already... ...well this whole thing triggered off... ...with the first incident... ...Mohammad Harzam Shah... ...he killed at... Uh, ...trade del- caravan... ...and then the delegation that came... ...the envoy killed him... ...so all this was the reason for it... ...that it triggered this whole problem... ...and then he made that very major... ...tactical blunder... ...he split his army into all the different cities... ...as a result they were run over... ...had this not been the case... Had he kept everybody in one place, maybe this might not have happened. All the maybes and the ifs and the buts. That's how the historians will normally look at it. But, there's a different perspective from which a mu'min looks at it. One very, very great historian of not the, of the very recent past, Hazrat Maulana Abdul Hassan Ali Nadwi rahmatullahi very great alim, very great historian. He's written a very major work on history. Tariq-e-Da'wat-u-Azimat, dawat azimat is translated into English also, the tariq e dawat Wazimat, azimat the English uh, Saviors of the Islamic Spirit, something really worth reading and a lot to learn from it. So this is a very voluminous, in several volumes this is, and he's recorded this whole incident of the Tatars in detail as well. Then he makes many points in there. And now he is making these points from the perspective that a Muslim should be analyzing these things. He says that look, these things are what historians would write, that this was the incident that took place and that triggered of this and this was a tactical blunder, etc., etc. But it doesn't happen, it doesn't normally happen that one person's blunder, one person's foolishness becomes the cause and the means of an entire population suffering the consequences. That doesn't normally happen. Rather what it is, it is the general condition of the Muslims of the time, that become the reason for those people in decision making positions, making foolish decisions. That then brings down the azab. Now they seem to be the ones that are doing all the uh, haywire things, but they are the reflection of the population. When the population overwhelmingly goes in that direction, then the leaders are the reflection of that. And they will then make those foolish blunders. One of the things that happened, it is mentioned that when Baghdad was being attacked, the Khalifa was a pious person. He was, now they sent him back. Initially he was there in his room and he was busy performing Salah. And the Tatars on the outs, they were surrounding besieged the city, from there they started uh, firing arrows into the city. In any case, these arrows were coming in. One arrow came in through this window. The window might have been closed, but it broke through that window and shattered the window of the room where this Khalifa was busy performing his Salah. One young child, his daughter, a little girl, he was sleeping in that room. And that arrow came and fell directly on her and killed her. But now when he went to remove that arrow, there was an inscription on that arrow. How that inscription came? Whether it came from the unseen? Whether it was written before? Apparently it came from the unseen. But there was an inscription on that arrow. And that inscription, what was written on it is that, Iza'arad Allahu infa'adha Qadai, When Allah ta'ala decides to now implement His decree, that people have now done whatever it was to draw down the azab. So Allah ta'ala decided to now send the azab, What does Allah then do? That the intelligence of the intelligent people is then snatched away. In other words, they start doing silly things. They start doing things that are not imaginable. They start making decisions which don't make sense. Like for example now the trade caravan. The simple thing that anybody would have thought is that okay fine arrest them first. Then do the thorough investigations. Make sure that the information is correct. Then if it is verified and it is established these people are spies, they have come for some wrong uh, purpose now you executed them, you have your evidence on hand. Now that was a just logical thing to do. That was a simple logical thing to do. But a person of this intelligence this amount of intelligence he has that he can go around and conquer so many lands and become the greatest king of the region but he couldn't think that much. Why he couldn't think that much? Allah ta'ala snatched that intelligence away. Again came that next envoy, an envoy, an ambassador. This in any, any place, this is something that's never done, that the ambassador is killed. But he couldn't think that much? Yes, he couldn't think. Why he couldn't think? Allah ta'ala took that intelligence away. Sin, sin stunts the intelligence of a person. Zulm and oppression, it blocks the intelligence of a person. Then sometimes it's glaring that what harm a person is doing to himself, what he's doing to his family, how he's destroying his life, he's destroying others. Everybody is seeing it, he can't see it. And People are bewildered, but why can't this person understand the simple thing like this we're telling him. He wants to embark on something which is going to be totally destructive. All the writing is on the wall that you do this, you're going to completely destroy yourself, your family. But he just can't understand it. Everybody can't seem to fathom But such a glaring thing. How, come, how he's not understanding it? He's not understanding it due to the darkness of sin having covered his mind. He can't think straight. His thinking gets completely blocked. He can't think correctly. So likewise, many other incidents happened that as a result of which these kind of foolish decisions were made. But those foolish decisions as a result of this intelligence being taken away. Why? This was a reflection of the population. It is stated at that time that there was the morals of the people had come to an all-time low. The vices that were prevalent were all kinds of vices. Now we're talking about the population in general, the Muslims. All kinds of vices, people who were just focused on merely merry-making, and the wealth at that time had come to a peak. Let alone others, slaves are slaves. Slaves don't have wealth. But even the slaves of that time, there was one slave, somebody, one of the kings bought a slave from somebody. That slave had a property of his own. The income from that property was 300,000 dinars a year. Now this is a slave. This is the slave's property, what was his master's property? And that kind of slave being sold with that kind of property, so what must have been the price? If this was, but now wealth, wealth is something It's like extremely, just as an example, very highly concentrated food. Now, for example, a little baby, give it very rich food to eat. A child is two months old and, you know, give it very, very, give it meats and give, what's going to happen to the child? Can't digest it. It's going to make him sick. He needs to have the right digestive system. Likewise, wealth needs the correct digestive system to digest the wealth if there is deen deen will digest that wealth there is taqwa taqwa will digest that wealth and it will then channel it correctly but if taqwa is missing then it's like a person eating excellent food but the digestive system is out of place what is going to be the end result? he's going to be running to the toilet he's going to create a stink that's what happens with wealth if the digestive system of taqwa is not in place, is not being channeled and creating nourishment for himself, for his family, for the umbat at large, for those who are underprivileged and for one and all, it won't be creating nourishment for anybody. It will be creating a stink. Now, This is the same thing that happened in this time. That the people's morals had come to an all-time low. People involved in all kinds of vices. Sports had become the norm of the time. One particular ruler of that time had become himself so engaged in sport. Perhaps this might have been the first time that this happened. That he started creating a uniform. Now we'll call it a kit. For those who were involved in that sporting uh, activities of the time. All this became the norm. All this became what people were all involved in. And what their uh, whole focus of life became. Merrymaking. Indulging in amusements. That became the order of the day. To what extent? Now this was a Muslim land, Baghdad. was a seat of the Khilafat. But the days of Eid, such auspicious days, were purely merry-making days. Now it's Eid, but merry-making in any... just to amuse oneself. So now the processions of the king and so on would come out early in the morning. And it would be really done up and really very, very... You know, in the, for the time it was something out of this world. So people would be so engrossed in that. Early in the morning, they are lining up to now see this whole procession of the king. There were two occasions when the Eid Salah, on one occasion, the Eid Salah was performed close to midnight. They got so caught up in this amusement, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. They got so caught up in this amusement, they forgot about the Eid Salah. Eid Salah was performed close to midnight. The following year, the same thing happened. It was just before sunset. Now, obviously, the time of Eid Salah, we know when it is. But now, since they missed it at that time, they're just making, so to say, qaza of it. Just close to sunset that Eid Salah was performed. Now, this was the extent to which this amusement and merrymaking overtook the people. These are things again to reflect on. Which direction our communities are heading. That On a general note, while there is a lot of poverty, while there is a lot of hardship and difficulty, at the same time, perhaps there was never so much of wealth also in the Ummah, in the general population of the Ummah. Though the percentages might not be much in terms of the overall population, but still, on a general note, there perhaps was never so much of wealth. But, what is the end result of it? How many percent are able to digest that wealth? Alhamdulillah there are those who digest it but how many percent and how many are using it in a way that is not much different to how it was being used in these times. On one one wedding one of the things the historians have written that the weddings were really overboard. All kinds of wastage and extravagance to the highest extent was being indulged in weddings and all these amusements and sports and whatever. What are we witnessing in our time? So, in any case, these were some of the things that were very common already in the time. There was general neglect of deen, people were just engrossed in their dunya, and this is how things continued, as a result of which, this became the scene. There are many ahadiths, we don't have the time to go in those ahadiths. These are aspects also Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam foretold, that if these things become prevalent in the ummah. These are going to be the end results. These will be the consequences. When people will uh, cheat in weight and measure, various things Rasulullah sallallahu foretold will happen. One of them was Jawri Sultan. Kings will become oppressive. One of the other things mentioned in that same hadith, that when the leaders will not rule according to the book of Allah Ta'ala, then the infighting will become very severe. Now if you look at what's going on in the Middle East and various other... Muslim lands. The rule of Allah Ta'ala is relegated somewhere else. So what is the end result? Muslims and Muslims are fighting open uh, war. So these are all things that Nabi Sassam has already foretold. When these conditions will come into the Ummah, these will become the end result. People will not be, uh, the, the inflation will become rampant. All these things are mentioned in the Adis. So in any case, this is what happened at the Tatars' Overtook all these places. But now there is another part of this history. Those who had been involved in these massacres and so on, they obviously with time, they died, but their progeny were still ruling. After Genghis Khan died, his whole kingdom split up into four four regions. And his descendants, each one had taken on one region each and they were ruling over that region. Allah Talaz. Nizam and his will in that time among the people one of the things that had happened was that there were pockets of pious people as well because these were all seats of learning the general population had turned their backs on deen, this brought about this calamity and when a calamity befalls in this manner then it doesn't spare anybody the good and the bad all get caught up in it but when this happened those pockets of pious people all over the place, they realized that what had become the reason for this, the downfall of the people, was in their amal, that they had gone into all the vices, so they started making a very, very strong effort to bring back deen alive. Now with the effort that was made to bring deen alive, they began passing on the word of Allah ta'ala, inviting people to come back onto the full deen, they began teaching deen, etc. All the efforts of Deen were now being intensified. Over time as these efforts of Deen started intensifying people's Amal started coming back on track. So now the tables started turning again in the other way. These four regions one after the other the people who were over who were ruling over these regions. One of the regions there was one person who was ruling over one region his name was Baraka. It was a Tatar. So he was ruling over this one huge area. One day, one caravan of traders came from another place—Muslim traders. So he got talking to two of those traders, and he asked them something about Islam. When he asked them about Islam, they took hold of the opportunity. Now these were traders, but they understood that their main trade is Deen. Ya Amanu Hal adullukum Ala Tijaratin Tunji Min Alim. The Quran Sharih says, "Oh, you believe? Should I tell you a trade, a trade that will save you from a painful punishment?" wa rasulihi, wa fi bi Allah Ta'ala then gives the detail that you bring iman in Allah Ta'ala, you strive in His path with your lives, with your wealth. So, this is a tijarat. Allah Ta'ala has described it as a tijarat, as a trade, as a business. These traders also knew what's their main business. They seize this opportunity. And they spoke to him in such a way that he accepted Islam. Now, he's the ruler. He accepted Islam. In a short while, his entire region, the people under his rule, accepted Islam. Now, these are the Tatars. They were the most hardest against the Muslims. And they had that, that hatred for the Muslims who were coming down as a legacy from their forefathers. But Allah ta'ala turned the hearts. This person became a Muslim. Then there was another area in Persia, the ruler was Qazan, he was raised as a Buddhist, this person was raised as a Buddhist, he was invited to Islam, some whatever the circumstances became, after some time this happened, he accepted Islam, after he accepted Islam, the whole area it became, again, all the people under him, they one after the other started becoming Muslims, he stated that these were those fierce people against the Muslims. They were now seen walking around with tasbihs in their hands. hymning the name of Allah Ta'ala. Taking the name of Allah Ta'ala. Then there was another person in another area. Uh, Taghlaq Timur. He was ruling over this area. One sheikh of that time, shaykh Jamaluddin from Bukhara. He was traveling with some caravan of his. Without realizing it, they trespassed into this person's territory. It was his reserve, game reserve or something. So As soon as they trespassed into it, this person, Taghlaq Taimur, his people came, they arrested them. All of them were taken to him. So he was very upset. How dare you trespass into my land? The Sheikh explained to him, look, we didn't do this deliberately. We were just passing through. We are strangers here. We don't know the roads. And we just got lost. We ended up trespassing. It wasn't done deliberately. So now in a kind of uh, humiliating manner, in a degrading way, he asked the sheikh, "That who's better, you or this dog? The sheikh very calmly replied, that if I die on Iman, I'm better. And Allah forbid, if I die without Iman, this dog is better. Now this is people who have the realities in their heart; they don't get called, uh, overcome with all these kind of things. And get caught up in that, that what do you think I, I am a dog? Was it a dog or something, you're talking to me like this? They're very cool and calm about it. The realities are in front of them. And they dismiss all these things. These things don't mean anything to them. So when this person, when the Sheikh Jamaluddin replied and said that if I die with Iman, then I'm better than this dog, otherwise this dog is better. This person, taghlak Timur asked him, what's this Iman you're talking about? And when he asked the question, what is this Iman? The Sheikh again took hold of the opportunity and he spoke to him in such a persuasive manner. This person accepted Islam. And then the fourth region over some time also, this entire area, this was the area that the Muslims at one time were ruling and they were massacred in these entire places. The very people who conquered them and who conquered them and mercilessly butchered the Muslims. They butchered them because they were Muslims. But when the efforts of Deen took place again, When the Muslims came back onto Amal, when the Muslims rectified their lives, and when this became the dominant thing, there will always be pockets of things all over the place. In a place of complete good also, there will be pockets of evils carrying on here and there. But when the overwhelming majority, or the majority are on one track, then generally the conditions come according to that. The majority are on Deen, on Iman, on Amal, on righteousness, then those kind of good conditions come along. But when the majority have gone in a different direction, then it's a very scary situation. That the good and the bad will all get encompassed in that azab if it comes. Now if we just take a little analysis of this salah alone, how many percent of the ummad is on five times salah with jama'ah? Five times salah with jama'ah is a bit of a faraway place, five times salah itself. How many percent of the ummad? Can we even claim ten percent? Now this is the first obligation of Deen. But now this is the condition of the Ummah in general. So in any case, this is what happened. And as a result of this, efforts of Deen that took place, and Islam became dominant again, Deen and Iman came in the lives of the Muslims, as a result, Allah Ta'ala turned the hearts of those who were massacring them. Allah Ta'ala brought Iman in their hearts. And they now became the rulers, but just the not just any kind of rulers, they were the Muslim rulers now. So, what is the lesson in all this? One is that these things, these conditions that come, is a system of Allah ta'ala that the kind of actions that the believers will engage in, A'malukum, your actions are your rulers. So often the rulers are the, the whole focus is on what the rulers are doing, but the rulers, they are a reflection of the proper population. What the population wants, in some countries, Muslim countries at the moment, there's a lot of uh, consternation what the rule is up to but then people who are in the know they say well this is what the, probably the majority of the population wants they want all these things they are actually very happy that all this is happening so now this is again the other very 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 uh, frightening part of it which we will finish up on this ayat of the Quran Sharif which we decided right at the beginning but Allah Taala says that ida aradna an لِكَ Karyatan Amarna mutrafiha. When the time comes when Allah Ta'ala decides that a place should be destroyed. So then the people of affluence are then reminded. They are reminded by the people of deen that look, this lifestyle, this way of living our lives is not right. Come back onto deen. But then they ignore it. So now the hujjat and the proof of Allah Ta'ala has been established. You are reminded, reminded again And reminded again They go on sinning And then the azab comes And totally annihilates them This is something to be very very concerned about We have to bring deen into our own lives More than having A Muslim rule What is more important is having An Islamic life Muslim rule is mashallah very good but if there is an Islamic life in the population, that Muslim rule itself will be of no avail. In dunya, that will not help us because that Muslim rule also will be Muslim in name. It won't be Islam left. So what is more important than Muslim rule is having Islamic societies. That The population must be on deen. then that population, the reflection of the population will come in the rulers as well. So these are the lessons that we have to bear in mind that this is a very, very heart-rending part of history, but it would be even more tragic if after having um, come to know about this part of history, we still fail to take the lesson. We fail to take the lesson and implement the lessons that we don't get caught up in those vices that they got caught up in, which finally drew down the azab of Allah ta'ala, and that we bring our lives onto complete deen. Allah Tabarak give us a tawfeeq. Wa akhiru da'wanan alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Quite a bit of time has been taken. We'll make okay. the today, inshallah. Allahumma neka alhamdu kulluhu wa neka shukru kulluhu Allahumma la nuhsithana an alaik anta kama athnit ala nafsik
0: jazallahu anna nabiyyana muhammadan sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bima huwa ahlu Allahumma ftahlana bil Khair, wa akhtimlana bil khayir wajal awaqiba umurina bil khayir
1: bihadika al khayir innaka ala kul shayn qadir ربنا هب لنا من ازواجنا
0: وذرياتنا قرة اعين وجعلنا للمتقين اماما وجعلنا للمتقين اماما وجعلنا للمتقين اماما, وجعلنا للمتقين إماما ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع
1: الابرار ربنا واتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة انك لا تخلف الميعاد اللهم ثبتنا على الايمان وأمتنا على الايمان وحشرنا يوم القيامة مع الإيمان يا مقلب القلوب ثبت قلوبنا على دينك يا مصرف القلوب صرف قلوبنا على طاعتك ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا باللتنك رحمه إنك أنت الوهاب ربنا إنك جامع الناس ليوم لا ريب فيه إن الله لا يخلف المعاد اللهم إنا نسألك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر مستعاذك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وصلى الله تعالى على خير خلقه سيدنا محمد وآله وصحابه المعين